thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Now, don't panic, but we are being invaded because bedbugs are mounting a silent attack. They're sneaking into the country and setting up homes in our bedrooms. Victims of these nocturnal blood-sucking parasites develop large, itchy red bites. I'm already starting to itch. And the numbers of infestations are on the rise. We'll be finding out why and what we can do to stop it. Plus, evidence of the earliest human use of the bow and arrow and also ash dieback disease. What is this threat and can we actually stop it? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. It's Sunday the 11th of November. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and with Chris Smith. If you would like to get in touch with any questions or comments, then you can tweet at Naked Scientists, comment at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists, or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Bedbug infestations are on the rise. Although the UK has been relatively clear of them for the last 50 years, we are now seeing a rapid rise in the number of cases but it's not entirely clear why. Now scientists are turning to genetic techniques to help them to uncover the cause of this bedbug comeback. And Toby Fountain is a PhD researcher at Sheffield University where he's looking at this very question. Hello, Toby. Hello. Ever been bitten by one? Uh, Unfortunately, I have, yes. And what was it like? What happened? It's not very pleasant. Well, the the thing with bedbugs is they don't like to just bite you once. They tend to bite you several times because they're trying to find a juicy capillary so what you normally find is you get kind of like a a row of bites so even one one individual might bite you five or six times so it can be quite quite grim really tell us about the organism responsible what are these bugs what do they look like how would i recognize one bed bugs are small flightless parasites that suck on our blood they're visible to the naked eye and adults are about the size of an apple pip they're kind of a dark uh, reddy brown color so they're quite cryptic. They do hide away in lots of places, but if you saw one on your arm, you'd definitely be able to see it. They're bigger than a flea, for example. Where do they hang out? Because we call them so, bed bugs, but is, is that a reasonable name for them? They don't actually like being in the bed because they might get squashed. So where they actually tend to live is kind of cracks and, uh, and crevices around the bed. And what they'll do is when you're sleeping, they'll stealthily march out, they'll bite you, they'll feed on you. And then they'll, as quickly as they can, they'll scuttle away to their, their safe hidey hole. So they don't actually sleep in the bed with you in the majority of cases. Reassuring, although not much. How do they find you? So there's, there's actually a, a number of mechanisms they use depending on the scale. So what they can do is they use CO2, for example. 
So the carbon dioxide that you breathe out, they can pick up very quickly. Uh, and then when they get a bit closer to you, they use a combination of infrared and also like they smell you, sort of your, the chemicals coming off your body. They smell you and that's kind of how they locate you. And then the rest is history, I suppose you could say. Speaking of which, looking back in time, these organisms, these insects, were much more common as a, as a pest in people's homes than they are today, thankfully. Why were they more common then? Why did they disappear? Yeah, I mean, that was the, that's the thing a lot of people don't know, is they were very common in the UK until about the 1940s. And uh, it was kind of a part of everyday life for people to, to live with, with bugs. Um, but when it got to about the 1940s, the, the government here they introduced a more stringent public health legislation. And we also saw the development of, of powerful insecticides like DDT. And they've been presumed to be what's been responsible to, to bring the numbers right down. And like you said, now it's, the mystery is that they, the last 10, 15 years, they've started coming back. They started to get increased reports of them. And what we're trying to do is, is kind of work out why that is. Is that a comprehensive thing? If you look at pretty much any Western country, you're going to find yes. this similar sort of trend? Or is yes. it just in Britain? No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a fact of it's seen across uh, the Western, Western world, I think. Like the United States and Australia, for example, haven't really had very... Um, many reports of bugs until the similar time. So that's the, that's the kind of interesting bit, that this pattern has happened globally at, at the same time. And in countries that didn't use insecticides and things, have they always stayed high or was there just a massive global reduction in their incidence? No, I think they, they're still maintained. Um, for example, in Africa, they still have quite a, a... They've always had a high number of bugs and that's still been a, a common feature of life out there. So how are you using the power of genetics in your research to try to understand a bit about what these insects are doing? Okay, well, first and foremost, I'm an evolutionary biologist. So one of the things I'm interested in is how genetic diversity is maintained within populations. So we know that genetic diversity is very important as it's what allow organisms to adapt to external pressure. Now, bedbugs are very interesting because it looks like um, humans are responsible for moving them around. What my research is finding is that it's usually just a very small number of related individuals that eventually start new infestations. And because this number is so small, you get quite a lot of inbreeding. And uh, mating with relatives causes a reduction in your genetic diversity, which can be de detrimental for many species, but not the bug. So what we're using is, is basically DNA fingerprinting. So what this allows us to do is look at different variable regions in bedbug DNA between individuals and then we can compare how related individuals are. Now, this is very interesting from a, an evolutionary standpoint, but it also has a, a number of very useful practical applications. For example, we're starting to identify the exact kind of numbers which, of bugs which do start infestations. And also what we're being able to do is, is identify where, what infestations are linked, which is going to have some very important practical applications for pest controllers. So do you have to go to sites of outbreaks and physically find bed bugs or do people kindly send them to you it's actually it's a combination of the two i remember early in my phd i was a bit it was a bit strange because i was advertising for people to send me their bugs which i i hadn't expected when i started but i've also yes i've also been to a number of of infestations myself and, and it's really it's really that side of my work that's really um opened up to me how much of a problem they are when i when i started i read the literature and you know the they sounded like they're, they're pretty bad, but I think it's not until you've actually stepped inside a, a home with a substantial bug problem and, and you see how, how horrible it actually is and, 
and what real pressure there is to you know try and come up with adequate uh, control strategies to get rid of them. I'm returning to your question of studying diversity of bed bugs. Mm-hmm. So you you do the genetic fingerprinting. You are you are able to to study how these things originate and how they spread. What actually are you able to tell about the pattern of spread? Are are we able to blame low-cost airlines for sending people off on package holidays, they then stay in low-cost accommodation, which is riddled with bed bugs. bring them back here, and then they spawn an outbreak at home, and, and then that propagates around the country. OK, well, the first thing we can say is actually that um, cleanliness of a, of a property um, has very little to do with the chance of having a, a bug. You're as likely to get them from a, a very cheap uh, host, um, hotel or hostel as you are to uh, one unlucky high-class hotel could have them equally as much. Well, it's probably a bit early to say whether they're coming from a certain place or not, what we're definitely finding is a pattern of, uh, of humans moving them around. So if you remember, I said at the start that bedbugs can't, wa- um, can't fly, they can only walk. So what you might expect in that situation is the further you go away from an infestation, the less related individuals are going to be. It's called well, they the can isolation. fly if you put them on an aeroplane, of course. Exactly. So what, with, what you can do with that is you can see, OK, naturally they... If, they, if we weren't contributing to their spread, if humans weren't contributing, we'd see this isolation by distance pattern. We'd see that as, as the further you move away, the less related a bug would get. But couple, like you rightly said, couple that with we're now flying a lot more, we're not seeing that expected pattern. So that is giving support that humans are actually facilitating their, their long-range uh, spread. Toby's going to stay with us for the rest of the programme. If you have any questions for him about bed bugs, how they spread and what contributions they can or can't make to human health, why not get in touch now? Tweet at Naked Scientists. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists, or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Ben. Now, bed bugs are one of a very small handful of species who demonstrate an unusual type of mating behaviour known as traumatic insemination. Now, this is where the male, rather than delivering sperm into a specially evolved organ, actually pierces the abdomen of the female and delivers the sperm directly into her abdominal cavity. To explain more about the biological adaptations that allow a female to survive this, we are joined by Dr Richard Naylor, who works with the Bedbug Foundation. Richard, thank you for joining us. This doesn't sound like a very efficient or effective way of inseminating. It's not at all uh, efficient or effective for the female. Uh, well, it's effective. <laughs> they, do have, um, they do have offspring as a result of it, but it's not, it's not the female that drive it. What actually happens once the male has sort of punched his way through and delivered his sperm? Presumably there are specialised organs then within the cavity that that take the sperm to the right place. He can't just make a hole wherever he wants it and and the sperm just finds its way to an egg. Or can it? Well, within the bed bugs, um, there's some some level of adaptation that the females have shown. They they don't just stab randomly anywhere in the body. They, They always stab in the same place. And because they are predictable where they stab the female, the females have have produced some sort of adaptation to being stabbed uh, that helps them to stop uh, losing hemolymph um, and helps to fight the infection that's associated with that. But once the sperm are in there, in that specially adapted region called the spermalege, they do make their own way through the hemolymph by themselves swimming to the sperm storage organs, uh, the female sperm storage organs from where they're used to fertilise eggs. So from the male's perspective, he can just deliver his sperm as and where. If there are sperm storage organs, then that, like in many other insects, would imply that you can get multiple matings. Does this mean the female actually gets stabbed many times and then sort of selects out the sperm that she wants to use? 
There's no evidence to show that the female can select uh, which sperm she wants to use, but you're absolutely right. There are, there, there are multiple matings upon multiple matings. The males, we know, mate uh, tens and tens of times more frequently than females need to be mated in order to stay fully fertile. So uh, we, know, we know that uh, this is bad for females because the males are just mating far more than they need. A female bedbug needs to mate about once every five weeks and it's, it's likely to be f kind of five or ten times a day um, that the males will mate with the females if they get the chance. How do the females actually survive this? It sounds, well, the, the clue is in the name, isn't it? It sounds traumatic. It is traumatic, yes. Well, we know that they don't survive as well as they would if they were only receiving uh, a mating every five weeks. We've done these experiments and we've shown that females pay a cost in terms of their longevity, their lifespan, of about 25% as a result of natural mating rates. So we know that this mating system is bad for females, but they don't have any, any control over it. It's a, it's a male-driven mating system, so the males uh, impose the, the mating rate on the females. I mentioned at the beginning that there are not very many species that actually undergo this sort, and I can see why. What is the sort of selective pressure that caused this to evolve? You would think, as it is so costly for the females, that it would very quickly adapt out. Yeah, that's right. And in a, if you imagine a, a biological system where males and females are working together to produce the most offspring between them, you would expect it to um, to adapt out, as you say. But um, but that's not what we think is happening. We think there's a conflict between males and females. And then what's in it for the males is that it's always the last male that sires the most offspring. And so males are competing to be the last one, and that's what's driving this elevated mating rate. Now, we also mentioned earlier that there is, of course, as with any injury, there's a risk of infection. What adaptations do the females have in order to, to be able to heal, to repair the wound, and to stop themselves just being taken over immediately by a bacterial or fungal infection? There's a very similar system in the whole family, the Cymesidae, um, and they all show different levels of adaptation. But in the bedbug, the females have a, a little pocket which receives the sperm. This little pocket's called the spermalege, and it's packed full of immune, um, immune cells, something like our white blood cells. There's a, a very high concentration of them in this little area. It looks like a little patch of cotton wool. It's probably about the size of a, a large grain of brown sugar. This little area of immune cells does a very good job at mopping up all those bacteria and also stopping haemolymph leak back out through the, the wound that the males make. Now, species like bedbugs have just what we call an innate immune system. So unlike our immune system, which can learn to recognise a threat and, and then adapt, and then the next time you get infected with the same bug, you're even better at fighting it off. With just the innate immune system that they have, presumably it must be really quite aggressive to just fight and kill off everything. Yeah, we, we've always thought about insects as having very basic, simple, not very advanced uh, immune systems. And, and to some extent that's right, but it is a very effective immune system. It has um, several different uh, components to it. Um, and one of the most important components is lysozyme. It releases lysozyme and this chops up bacteria. It can detect bacteria being introduced and then elevate these various components of its immune system um, and just fire all these toxic chemicals at the bacteria and yeah hopefully wipe them out and it does in the bed bug it does a pretty good job in that um in that immune organ so does that mean that there's something that we can learn from the bed bugs about potentially how to fight off infections or to make new antibiotics Antimicrobial peptides are one of the, the things that insects 
have that we've been exploring as a as a medication what's interesting about um insect immune systems is that the bacteria don't seem to evolve resistance to them so we've all heard of the uh, antibiotic resistance which is kind of rendering all our antibiotics that we use uh, in the medical profession useless because the bacteria are evolving to cope with them and we don't see nearly as much resistance to antimicrobial peptides which is one of these tools that the insects use so yes there are there are lots of people working on that very question can we learn from insects to to help ourselves well, thank you very much, Rich. Uh, that's Dr. Richard Naylor, who works with the Bed Bug Foundation, and he'll be with us for the rest of the show. So if you have any questions, then do get in touch. It's The Naked Scientists, Chris Smith and Ben Valsler. Still to come, how you can tell if you've got bed bugs in your house and how to rid yourself of a bed bug infestation. But first, let's take a look at some of this week's other leading scientific breakthroughs. Chris, what have you got for us? Well, this week, some delicate stone arrowheads that date back about 71,000 years have been unearthed in a part of South Africa. This is at Pinnacle Point, which is on South Africa's southern coast. It's been published in the journal Nature this week by uh, Cape Town archaeologist Kyle Brown and his colleagues. Why this is important, they have been excavating this site and they have identified these little tiny bladelets. They are worked pieces of flint which bear an uncanny resemblance to things which much more recently, have been found in association with wooden shafts and therefore probably were arrowheads. But the interesting thing is that they are so hard to make in terms of they got the right sort of stone, that's what you needed, they have been heat-treated in order to make the stone more workable, so they would have had to collect the stone from one place, take it to another place to heat-treat it, work the stone in the right way, then work the stone in such a way that it'll fit into another piece of worked material, like a piece of wood or bone, to slot into it, then bind the blade on. And their argument is that, given this was all going on 71,000 years ago, in order to pass on the skills of doing all of this and communicate this complicated manufacturing process, this isn't something that you could do without language. And they're making the point that this is an indirect evidence of very highly advanced language amongst people 71,000 years ago. Now, up until now, people thought we had, had language in what we now regard as modern humans from about forty or 50,000 years ago. But this was based only on, again, indirect evidence, looking at symbolic evidence, people painting things or drawing particular depictions or exhibiting certain behaviours. Now we've got, again, very tangible evidence with this highly, highly involved manufacturing process that's emerged from this site that they can date not just from 70,000 years ago, but there's 11,000 years of manufacture of these tools. So it's going on over a long period of time. And the fact that the tools change subtly and evolve and become better as time goes on argues that the, the technique is being passed on and explained. And it's interesting as well because I think there's another consequence of this. In the paper at the end, there's this beautiful line that says microlith-tipped projectile weapons, and these little bladelets are microliths, extended the effective range of lethal interpersonal violence. In other words, people attacking each other. They would have conferred substantive advantage on modern humans as they left Africa and encountered Neanderthals, who were equipped with only hand-cast spears. There's always been this question about why Neanderthals disappeared 24, 30,000 years ago or so, why they dwindled and, and then eventually completely disappeared. 
it looks like these people coming out of Africa for a very long time had been perfecting the art of making arrows and darts that they could fire. And the Neanderthals didn't have that, and they would probably have come second in the race. It's a shame to see that evidence of very early communication and cooperation is also probably evidence of very early warfare. It's all about warfare because people are fighting for resources. The other point is it's um, also how you get your lunch. Because if you can use a bow and arrow against a very dangerous animal, you're less likely to come off badly. And this enabled people to catch their lunch without having to take such a risk themselves personally. And that meant that population survival was going to be much greater because you were going to lose fewer people owing to trauma and injury in catching your lunch. And presumably it would make things a bit more democratic because it's people who've got good aim as well as people who are just really fast. Whoever's got the biggest spear. Whoever's got the biggest spear. And also this week, researchers at the Vice Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard University have made a lung on a chip that is capable of modelling a human disease or human condition called pulmonary edema. It consists of a polymer structure about the size of a USB stick and that contains a number of hollow channels. Two of those channels are separated by a very thin porous membrane and that's coated on one side with human lung cells and on the other side with cells from very small blood vessels known as capillaries. By passing air over the upper surface and blood-like medium across the underside, the chip can model the interactions that occur at the surface of the lung. Now, there are two other channels on the sides of the chip that can expand and contract. They pump in air or they vacuum it out in order to deform the interface, to stretch it, to mimic breathing action. And now the new research that's been published in Science Translational Medicine demonstrates an abnormal function of a human lung. There's a drug that's used in cancer chemotherapy called interleukin-2, and it's known to have a serious side effect of causing pulmonary edema. That's where fluid can leak into the airspaces of the lungs. And if the lung on a chip is truly a model of a human lung, then we should expect to see the same sorts of leakiness across the lung tissue as a result of administering interleukin-2. And this is exactly what they saw. The lung on a chip experienced the leakiness, reduction in oxygen transport and the clotting that you would see in real edema. The experiment actually went one step further and identified something entirely novel about edema as well, and that's the fact that the very act of breathing increases the leakiness over threefold. So it's a very serious and important thing they've discovered. Organs on a chip are thought to be useful for very, very high throughput, replicable and easily controllable drug screening. And this could potentially do away with the need for animal studies, which can be costly. And in fact, only about 10% of drugs that initially start out on animals get to humans. So this will increase the rate at which we can identify new drugs. And now other organs, organ systems and other conditions should follow. And it's very likely to change the future of drug design and drug discovery. Breath of fresh air. Thank you very much, Ben. Now, a major news story in the UK this month has been the discovery of ash dieback disease, a fungal infection that destroys ash trees, unfortunately. To find out more about this threat and whether or not we can control it before it spreads further, we're joined by Reading University plant pathologist Professor Michael Shaw and Cambridge University's Professor of Mathematical Biology, Chris Gilligan, who's also chairing the government's task force looking at this. Uh, We'll begin with Michael first. Hello, Michael. Hello. First of all, what is this disease that we're calling colloquially ash dieback? It's a fungus which spreads by spores which form on fallen leaves and can infect leaves of a healthy tree and uh, then spread from there into the bark and the conductive tissues of the tree and cause wilting of shoots and 
eventually in, in small trees girdle the trunk and kill it. In older trees, it kills shoots and maybe branches and weakens the tree so that it becomes liable to succumb to things which wouldn't normally be a lethal disease. Is it just ash trees that are vulnerable to this particular infection or can it hop onto other trees and species too? As far as we're aware, it affects a group of ash trees, particularly the common European elm, uh, which is the one we have, um, a couple of other species. It seems to be less serious on far eastern elms. And in fact, the evidence at the moment is that it comes from the far east. It seems to exist in a benign form, coexisting fairly happily with certain types of ash tree in Japan and presumably the wider Far East. How do we think that something from the Far East took up residence in Britain? It's taken up residence in Britain because sometime in the early 1990s it took up residence somewhere in Eastern Europe, let's say in Poland, and it's been spreading from there as a spreading infection since that time. It was in Scandinavia in the mid-2000s, by 2009. I think 90% of Danish ash trees had some signs of infection. It's now in France, as far as the Massif Central. So this is a big spreading wave of infection. How it got to Poland, we don't know. We're hearing this number of 90% of ash trees are vulnerable. Is this a reflection on the fact that not all ash trees are made equally? Are there different subtypes of ash tree? Well, no. It's more that um, ash trees are sexually reproducing, so they're quite variable. And in studying trees which appear to have been less badly affected in Denmark and in uh, Norway as well, it's been found that some trees appear to have survived because they're genuinely more resistant to the infection. And in looking at the progeny of those, looking at the seeds that arise from those trees, there are estimates of maybe 1% of the population will be able to survive. So is the sort of long-term prospect then that we'll end up selecting out the trees that are vulnerable to this, but we'll breed a new strain of trees which are naturally resistant to it. So we just have to wait for one generation of ash trees and then we'll have trees that are not vulnerable, so the problem will go away. Probably more than one generation because you'd have a sort of sputtering epidemic. You'd have some trees which survived the first wave. Anyway, I think that is probably correct. The only catch there is to think what the generation time of an ash tree is, particularly to get to some of the more attractive landscape trees that may be over a century old. So we're talking for the next decade or two, we would see perhaps a third of the landscape and forest trees around us disappearing. Ash is an extremely common species. And then gradually there would be a repopulation from resistant individuals. Of course, the disease may evolve at the same time, so we can't be absolutely sure what is going to happen. And can it be treated if you've got a tree which has got it? Is there any way to save that tree, or, or is this curtains? You've got to chop it down. Trees don't have an adaptive immune system, so there's no way in which you can immunise a tree against this infection. The kinds of disease management that we might use on crop plants, which involve chemical fungicides, are not feasible or would have side effects worse than the disease itself if you use them 
in the open environment because you would have to keep repeating them. So a parallel kind of disease would be apple scab, which is often treated with five fungicide treatments in a year, and that would have to go on indefinitely. So there isn't really any way in which we can cure a tree. For an urban tree, a much-loved specimen tree, it may be possible, I'm sure people will be trying, injecting fungicide directly into the tree. But it will be expensive and unfeasible in the wider environment. Intravenous treatment for a tree. Uh, let, let's bring in Chris Gilligan, who is uh, chairing the government's task force on this, also a plant scientist at Cambridge University. So, Chris, you've been down to advise the government. What did you tell them? I've come into this really as an epidemiologist and a mathematical modeler with some experience of developing models for a range of pathogens that might uh, come in and attack a range of species, including uh, trees, but also we've worked on bubonic plague in the past, for example, and used some similar methodology. Essentially, one wants to think, what are the three or four key questions that we might want to address in thinking about an invading pathogen? The first is you want to predict the spread. Secondly, you want to identify regions that are most at risk. Then you want to think about the effectiveness of management strategies, as as Michael has been referring to, and also telling us where to look in order to determine how the pathogen is spreading. And that's where we use mathematics. What are you finding so far? We're finding that Uh, This is a challenging uh, pathogen. It has spread, as Michael has said, rapidly, well, over a a period of 10 years, right across from Poland uh, now into the UK. We're working very closely uh, with a range of government scientists to identify where uh, the sites of infection are, whether they're in mature trees or whether they're in sites in which young saplings have been introduced. And that distinction is very important, particularly in thinking about the mechanisms for spread and also the potential for control. A lot of the newspapers have had things like, uh, they've said, now it's in mature trees, the horse has bolted, there's not a lot we can do. Is Is that because if it's in mature trees, that's an indicator that it's out there in the wild and spreading and that all the control strategies of nurseries, you can do all that you like, but you're not going to stop something once it's out there in the in the wild tree community? Well, these are early days yet, and we're simply developing models and testing them, almost uh, working, uh, my group is working almost 24 hours a day at present to develop models as fast, and importantly, to test the models as rigorously as we can. What about the distribution of ash trees around the country, though? Do you make assumptions about where all the ash trees are, and are they fairly homogeneously scattered across the country or are there hotspots, pockets if you like of where there are lots of ash trees and then not very many? This is one of the big challenges in dealing with an invading pathogen particularly of plants because although people might immediately think we know where all the ash trees are, in fact we don't we know where a lot of them are Excuse me, and a lot of effort has been uh, taken up over the last week in links uh, with the Forestry Commission to determine what are the best data that we possibly can get in order to obtain a map of where the ash trees are and particularly the connectivity and breaks in uh, in the distribution of the ash trees. We now have, I think, the best possible map that could be got in the time. When foot and mouth came to Britain about 11 years ago, that was controlled by 
removing all of the animals in infected areas, just literally blitzing them, it's almost creating a sort of firebreak, isn't it, and then sterilising an area. Will that strategy not work here? Could we not home in on areas where there are active infections in trees and remove all of the trees and therefore remove the source of infection? This is exactly why, uh, as a mathematical modeler, I would say we need to have the mathematical models in order to be able to do the what-if scenarios to compare different types of control. We have very recently, over the last few years in fact, been looking at the spread of another uh, disease of trees called sudden oak death in the United States where it's devastating larger areas of California and the equivalent pathogen is remorum disease of larch in this country. And we have used the models there to identify a culling strategy that is likely to have some effect in reducing the spread of disease. To reduce all of the disease, uh, to eradicate it, in fact, would be extremely difficult and extremely expensive. So let's just ask um, Michael to wrap this up for us. My Michael, what do you think the sort of long-term prospects are? Are we going to face a Britain with no ash trees? Because they make up, what, 40% of our natural woodland stock, don't they? I don't think it's quite 40%, but it's a very large proportion. It will make a very big hole in the landscape. And I am pessimistic. I hope Chris's group will... Um, do the sums, but a windblown disease is a very difficult thing to control. And so I am pessimistic that over the next decade or two, we'll see a lot of tree deaths. As I say, in our children's lifetimes, hopefully, we will see some recovery to a more stable position. But it, it's not looking good. Let's hope we do get on top of it. Thank you very much. Michael Shaw from Reading University and also Chris Gilligan from Cambridge University. Ben. Well, also this week we've seen evidence that fairy wrens, who are a type of bird found in Australia, hungry chicks of fairy wrens need to give a password in order to get food from their mother. And it seems, according to research published in Current Biology, that they actually learn this password while they are still in the egg. Which is magnificent to think that password. things... Password. It, it is a password. So it's a signature encoded in a special type of call that the mother does. It's called an incubation call. She only does it when she's on her own with her eggs. And in fact, we have a recording of a fairy wren incubation call, so you can hear the sorts of thing they're doing. Sounds like a bird song, to be honest. <laughs> yes, it does just sound like a, a bird song. But importantly, there are components within that that are unique to that mother. And it turns out that when the young are, are then hatched, they do their own begging calls for food, and there are some of those components in that incubation song that are also found in the begging song. And the reason why these birds do this is in order to protect themselves from cuckoos, because cuckoos lay eggs in their nests, and then the female fairy wrens and the male ones will waste loads of resources bringing up a cuckoo. But the cuckoo's egg isn't in the nest for as long, and it seems that that means it gets less exposure to this initial call that they learn when in the egg. Therefore, it doesn't know the song, and it can't give the password, and the parents then will react differently to a nest that has a, a bird that doesn't know the password. I'm surprised the cuckoo hasn't evolved, given that the birds have evolved to do this. Why hasn't the cuckoo? Well, that is mainly because the cuckoos have actually evolved to be able to take advantage of whatever the nest they're born in. So the, the species of cuckoo doesn't necessarily lay its eggs in just that nest. So what cuckoos can do is learn the calls very quickly once they have been born, and they are evolved to be adaptable, but they're not evolved in order to pick up this song that early on. And it just gives the actual fairy wren chicks what they've called an advantage in the acoustical arms race that helps the fairy wrens protect themselves from cuckoldry. 
What sort of scale of advantage did this research show or, or would this research predict that the birds get from having done this behaviour? Well, I don't think they really put fit numbers on it, but they could definitely show that a nest that couldn't give the password was more likely to be abandoned, was fed less often, and there were other behavioural adaptations, so if the passwords didn't quite match up, then the parents spent more time looking around and being observant around the nests. Other behavioural adaptations were that if they had seen a cuckoo, then they'd be a bit more careful in the first place to sort of get that password. So it's hard to say exactly what difference it does make, but in this sort of thing where it really does mean the difference between passing on your genes and wasting your life bringing up somebody else's offspring every little helps certainly does they'll have to go to one of the major supermarkets strap line like that thank you ben time now for this week's planet earth and what happens to the hormone disrupting chemicals in contraceptive pills or hormone replacement therapies once they've left the body well they end up in the sewage system and eventually as effluent in rivers but it seems that many of these chemicals are still active and they're having an effect on fish. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham has been talking to Charles Tyler from the University of Exeter, a world expert on this problem. One particular group of chemicals that we've been focused on are chemicals called estrogens or environmental estrogens. And these are chemicals that can mimic and copy the body's uh, hormone estrogen, which is, a, which is a, f- a female sex hormone. And they include, these estrogens include natural steroid estrogens derived from women, derived from, from, from the human population. They include contraceptive estrogens from the contraceptive pill. Also, actually, things like horse estrogens, equine estrogens, which are used in hormone replacement therapy. Then in addition to that, they also include chemicals that copy and mimic the structure of those natural steroid lesions, so various industrial products. Now, we're in one of your aquarium labs at the University of Exeter and surrounded, well, floor to ceiling by transparent tanks full of, well, beautifully coloured zebrafish zipping backwards and forwards and they're called zebrafish because they have these stripes running horizontally along them and each one I suppose I can't really measure them because they're going so fast about two centimetres long something like that these are one of the key model species that we now use to try and help us understand how some of these chemicals I mentioned how they work in the body because we know now from studies on wild fish that they're being affected by these chemicals that are being discharged they're being feminised males are being feminised essentially and so one of the big questions that we're trying to address in relation to the use of the zebrafish is how and where these chemicals work in the body and you say they're being feminized what what do you mean by that that males are showing traits or characteristics which are normally found in females. So defining feminization in fish includes they're producing proteins which are normally only found in females, yolk proteins, for example, which normally go into the eggs. They include alterations in structures within the testis, so the male gonad. They include, in particular, the presence of developing eggs within the testis. So quite unusual phenotypes, quite unusual effects of, of being seen in in the fish as a consequence of exposure to these estrogens. Now these zebrafish in here are not ordinary zebrafish. These are these are engineered to help you with the work. Absolutely. So you know the, these aren't native to English rivers and we're using these very much as a model to try, as I say, understand how chemicals work in a body. And these this is some work that Tetsu Kudu and a colleague uh, and myself have been developing uh, over time to help us 
understand where these chemicals work in the body. So these are what we call transgenic fish, and essentially there's some clever little genetic constructs have been placed into the, these fish, in turn, which then produce a green fluorescence. They glow green, essentially, in target tissues which are receiving and responding to these environmental estrogens. Now, if you're a male fish... Feminization sounds like a bad thing, but not necessarily. I mean, this is what you're investigating now. Absolutely. So our concern really has been that we have we find this widespread feminization of fish in English rivers, but we don't know whether it's causing uh, effects at the level of the population. Now, it matters if you're an individual fish and you're feminized because you have a reduced capability to breed. But does that really matter from the point of view of population? And when we think about protecting the environment, we don't protect at the level of the individual for wildlife, what we do for human health. We protect at the level of the population. So some of our parallel work now is trying to address where whether there are changes in the populations of wild fish living in English rivers. And how do you go about doing that at a population level? I mean, you can see these, these zebrafish in the tank, you can see if they've got this fluorescence, so they're being feminised, but how do you take that next step? Uh, addressing the population level sort of consequences of something like this is an extremely difficult and challenging uh, uh, question to address. In fact, there are very few examples for any chemicals discharge environment where you can show a population level effect and link it to a specific chemical. Uh, our charge, the way we're going about it, is we're trying to under- uh, address whether there's been changes in the genetic structure, uh, changes in the genetics of, of wild populations, and we're doing this by comparing comparing those genetics of fish in the more polluted rivers with Asians compared to those in cleaner environments. So we're using specific genetic tools to help us identify if the populations have changed. Charles Tyler from the University of Exeter. He was speaking with Planet Earth's Richard Hollingham. You can catch the latest Planet Earth programme on our website at nakedscientist.com slash planetearth. Remember, we are talking about bedbugs this week. We have as our guests uh, Toby Fountain and also Richard Naylor and uh, the next person we're about to speak to, Clive Bowes. Cases of bedbug infestation, as we've heard, are on the rise. But how do you know you've actually got them? And what can you do if you have got them? Clive Bowes is from the Pest Management Consultancy. Hello, Clive. Good evening. So tell us then, how do I know I've got bedbugs in my house? I mean, I haven't. I don't want before I damage my mortgage value of my property, but how would I know? Not surprisingly for a blood-feeding insect, the first sign you'll get of an infestation or the first sign that most people get is the appearance of bites. And uh, as we've heard earlier, these can be you know, really quite unpleasant, red, itchy lesions. They could appear anywhere on your body, but most typically they're on those parts of your body which are out of the covers when you're sleeping at night. So it's going to be the neck and the shoulders, uh, you know, perhaps the sides of your face, uh, maybe the arms, those parts of you that aren't covered up by the duvet when you're in bed. Now, of course, the trick uh, is to recognise these as insect bites as opposed to some other kind of skin disorder. Many people, you know, many people we meet, you know, their, their story, you know, running into a bed bug infestation is to say, they had a skin uh, a skin condition, they put it down to maybe some kind of eczema or allergy, they treated it, and often it's not until a few months later, you know, three, five, six, seven months later, that by some chance situation, the homeowner actually spots insects in the bed and draws the connection between this hitherto eczema-type skin condition and the insects and realising it's not a skin condition at all, it's actually bites from the bed bugs. 
bedbug awareness on the part of homeowners generally is perhaps one of the you know one of the most important things that can be done to speed up the diet or the identification of individual infestations and as a result of that the treatment and elimination of them so what advice can you give people about not bringing them home from their holidays if you're staying in a hotel or uh, any other kind of accommodation away from home be aware of bed bugs. Uh, the chances of picking up bed bugs anyway is actually very, very small. You know, I really wouldn't want to give the impression that the hotel industry in this country or any other country is, is awash with bed bugs. They're not. The figures we have show that the percentage of rooms uh, affected by bed bugs are really very, very small. Less than one in a thousand, sometimes down near one in ten thousand. How so, do you know that? Do you have to go and sleep in the bed and see if you get bitten? Uh, no, we collect statistics from from hotels. And um, as I said, contrary to popular opinion, bed bugs are really not that common in hotels, you know, despite what you read in the newspapers. The most important things to protect yourself are be very wary of buying second-hand bedroom furniture. Think again about that second-hand mattress. Think again about that second-hand bed or that bedside table that you're thinking you might buy. Bed bugs are very commonly moved around, again, on, on those sorts of items. So be aware of that. Uh, and again don't move into premises with bed bugs if you're thinking of renting a bedsit or a flat or somewhere have a look at it for signs of bed bug infestation what we're looking for are the fecal spots of bed bugs as we said bed bugs feed on blood their feces are very dark colored and uh, typically what we'll see is numbers of small dark spots perhaps the size of a pinhead maybe a millimeter across or so around bed bug harbourages and as Toby said those harbourages may be on or around the bed so we might be looking for the beading around the mattress around the buttons on the mattress around joints in the wooden bed frame uh, where the skirting board joins along the wall if we've got a white skirting board against the wall if we've got little bits of loose wallpaper back of the headboard would be another classic sign so if you're thinking of reading, renting a furnished flat furnished bed sit have a look at those sorts of areas and if we're seeing little black spots around there be very very careful so if someone calls you in and you have a look at the bed and you see these black spots and that's a danger sign to you what do you then do tear the room apart to uh, see, see if you can find them what do you do uh, well in order to start a treatment program we, we really need to confirm that they really are there we don't need to find every last one we're just looking for enough of a sign to say yep the room's infested and then a uh, bed bug treatment program might start so uh, just in uh, one room or does that mean right, you've got to blitz the whole flat or the whole house or whatever? Bed bugs, as we've heard, are really quite mobile. And if we've got a you know typical two, three bedroomed house, if they're in one room, the chances are they're in another. So don't stop at the first room where the you know original sighting or the original concern was raised. What Look about at flats, other rooms. Though? Um, I mean, if you live in a block of flats or, or a maisonette or something, if someone downstairs has got them. Could they crawl up into your flat? Yeah, they, absolutely they could. I was in this this last week. I've been working in a number of premises, doing research work there, and there we're seeing in blocks of sheltered accommodation, we're finding individual flats that are, if you like, a focus flat that is really quite heavily infested. And then around that, we have uh, a number of adjoining flats, not just adjoining on one level, but above and even below as well, as you say, where we're finding lighter bed bug infestations. And the indication is that bed bugs have spread from that original focus flat. And in some cases where we've got really heavily infested flats, if we step outside of that flat into the corridor, we can see actually bed bugs in the corridor around the door frame 
perhaps around the lights on the ceiling of the corridor and then even when we turn around 180 degrees from that badly affected flat and enter the flat opposite lo and behold we find a few bed bugs in there so they will you know we talked earlier i think toby talked about passive dispersal of bed bugs uh, but active dispersal within blocks of flats is really very very important and it's something i think going back a few years perhaps we didn't realize happened to the extent it really does you know we didn't think of bed bugs as particularly mobile now we realize they are and what about getting rid of them once you've found them you've identified positively that they're there how do you get rid of them i mean there's a number of options uh, you know there's the do-it-yourself option that's not an option i'm in favor of you know again when i get involved with people with bed bugs there will be this sort of typical narrative history where eventually they found they've got them they will have tried to get rid of them themselves and they will tell me about, you know, yes, we bought some aerosols, we bought some powder, we threw away the mattress, we got a new bed, you know, we threw away the carpet and so on. And after having done all that, they've still got bed bugs. So I would say that anybody who f- believes they've got bed bugs, uh, they, they need professional advice. And that professional advice may be input from a local authority, pest control team. And uh, there are still numbers of local authorities that offer a pest control service or a private company. And and, and I think the important thing is to talk with a number of potential providers of the service, check out the the service they can provide, check out the costs, very importantly, ensure that they will guarantee their work. So if it doesn't get a result, they will come back and do it again. Clive, thank you very much. We're discussing the biology of bedbugs this week. Our guests, Toby Fountain, Richard Naylor and Clive Bowes. Let's kick off. Uh, one for Toby. Millie on the text says, can bedbugs transfer human diseases, Toby? That's a good question. Uh, luckily, it seems like no, they can't. We don't know why, but often parasites are very complicated transmission routes, but one doesn't seem to have evolved in, in the bugs, luckily for, for us. But the bites are, are kind of a, a problem on their own because you can get quite severe reactions. Uh, Richard, we've got this one from Sky Albanese in Second Life. Hello to all of you Second Life businesses. Does the kind of traumatic mating you were talking about precede the more usual kind of insemination that we associate with insects? Uh, no, it doesn't precede it. It's come secondarily. So the, the bedbugs do have a normal uh, reproductive tract through which they lay their eggs. And this is a, a way of the males bypassing the normal route to try and get more of the offspring for themselves. Thank you, Richard. Uh, This in. My name's Robert. I'm from the Alton Road in Norwich. I have some experience um, back in 1970 while I was living in RAF Changi. In each room, there were eight men, all very clean and showered every day, but there was always two or three of them in each room who got infested with bed bugs terribly. The strange thing that I noticed, me included, is that, that the rest of us never got infected, just those few seems a question mark there. Does some people attract them and others not? Toby first, and then we'll ask Clive. Toby? I don't think some people attract them more. It may just be that some habit that those people had. They may have gone to a, the same place which had an infestation and they were bringing it back from that, that same area. But I, I'm not aware of any evidence that they prefer certain people to others. Clive? But bed bugs do seem to be really quite choosy. Yeah, Time and time again, we hear a situation typically where we've got a couple, a couple of people... And they say, my wife gets bitten and I don't, or my husband gets bitten and I don't. Uh, we don't fully understand that, but the reality is that bedbugs do appear to be quite choosy. Rather like mosquitoes, then, because there are certainly mosquito-attractive people and mosquito-repellent people. Like, my wife is an absolute magnet for them. I never get touched. 
there are also people who don't react to bed bu- uh, or to mosquito bites and those that do. And sometimes the differences are down to the sensitivity of the person, the reactivity of the person, rather than to the choice of the bed bug. So there's more work to be done in this area. Toby and possibly also Clive again. Uh, Mike in Clacton says, does a heated, possibly an electric blanket kill off bed bugs or does it take them, make them more active? It depends if you've got a super hot electric blanket, but no. A serious electric blanket, wouldn't it? Yes, exactly. No, (laughs) they're they're quite happy. (laughs) They're quite happy, um, I think, the temperatures that an electric blanket would have. In fact, that's one of the the hypotheses is that central heating, keeping the house a certain temperature has actually helped them. You know, they don't die off in the winter, which they might have done back before we could maintain the constant temperature. But I don't think an electric blanket would be... (laughs) <laughs> the best thing to On use. the text, uh, Cameron, while you're there, Toby, is wondering uh, how long do bedbugs hibernate and is it wise to take rugs or curtains from a flat that's been treated for bedbugs? Well, like I said, they don't, seem, they don't really hibernate it's, and it's now more that, you know, in the winter we have these constant room temperatures so the temperature drop isn't, isn't that big an issue. Clive, anything to add? Remote, should you strip the room, get rid of the curtains as well? Where we have a deep-seated infestation and if we have items that can't be treated by other means, then yet disposal of infested items may be a route to go down. But in general, most items can be treated either with insecticide or with heat treatment. But as Toby said, higher temperatures than you'd get with a domestic electric blanket. We're looking at typically 55, 60 degrees would be enough to, to cause bedbug mortality. And human mortality, quite possibly as well. Clive Bowes, also Toby Fountain and Richard Nader joining us on the programme this evening. Ben. And now, with a quandary that's been gnawing away at her, here's Hannah Critchlow with our Question of the Week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education, from alpha to omega. This week, we bite into a rather gruesome question from Rob Ferone in Singapore. What if a human being had his arms and legs removed and somehow it was turned into food which he had to consume? Putting aside the medical issue of the shock and the infections and so on, how long could this person remain living by consuming his own body, as it were? We crunch into some dietary data in order to find out the answer for this. My name is Louise Anthony and I'm a medical student at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. First off, let's assume that our survivor survives the surgery and the infection that they'll probably develop afterwards. And let's also ignore the massive energy demands of recovering from that surgery. We're also going to assume that they've come up with some really clever way to feed themselves without any arms. So bearing all of that in mind, what is our daily calorie demand and how much energy are we going to get from our limbs? First off, NASA have done a lot of research about their crew members and apparently the average male astronaut weighs about 82.5 kilos and his arms and legs are about 40% of his body mass, so about 32 kilos in this case. To work out how much energy we can get from that, we are going to have to use something as a proxy because there's not a lot of research about the calorific value of human meat. In this case, we're going to use uncooked pork chops, which, according to a well-known high street supermarket, offer about 213 calories for every 100 grams. So that means that our 32 kilograms of limb could provide about 68,000 calories. So how long is that going to last? 
Well, the World Health Organization has an equation to calculate daily energy requirements. For a man in his 30s, the equation is 11.6 times the weight in kilos plus 879. This is then multiplied by an activity factor of 1.2 for sedentary people up to 1.4 for people with extremely active lifestyles. We're going to assume that with no limbs, this guy is pretty sedentary. So using the equation for the remaining 50 kilos of man, now that we've taken 30 kilos of limb off, we're going to get a daily requirement of about 1,750 calories. So at that rate, our 68,000 calories of human limb should keep our survivor going for about 39 days or hopefully long enough to be rescued. So it turns out that your arms and legs would give you just over an extra month and a week more subsidence. And Pekka Alinki from Finland polishes this topic off with a comment on Facebook saying, aren't people on diets essentially just eating themselves? With that one digested, we next go in search of synchrony with a question just in. Hi, this is Michelle from Dixon, New Mexico. I would like to know if there is a scientific or evolutionary reason for women's menstrual cycles to sync when living together. Thanks. So does menstrual synchrony actually happen? And if so, why? What do you think? Let us know by posting on our Naked Scientists Facebook page. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can email chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Toby Fountain from Sheffield University, Richard Naylor, who works with the Bedbug Trust, Michael Shaw from Reading University, Chris Gilligan from Cambridge University and Clive Bowes from Pest Management Consultancy. Next week, we are throwing the show open to you for another question and answer show. So please send in your questions and your comments, of course, to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can post them to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Don't forget, my new Naked Scientist book is out just in time for Christmas. It's The Naked Scientist's Everyday Life Under the Microscope. You can get it on Amazon or from all good bookshops. Wonderful picture on the front of an ant with a lemon for an abdomen. Has to be seen to be believed. The show this week was produced by Hannah Critchlow, Ben Fausler and Tom Simpkins. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.